This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today marks the 70th anniversary of the Korean armistice, an agreement to end the fighting between North and South Korea. After after World War II, the former Soviet Union and the United States agreed to divide Korea. Because there is no peace treaty, it is considered by some as America's longest war, a Cold War legacy. Earlier this week, the conversation's Stephanie Han paid a visit to the old Korean Legation Museum in our nation's capital to better understand the history between Korea and the U.S. My life as a Korean-American has been defined by the different immigration time periods at work within my family. Mom's side is local Hawaii. We arrived in 1904 to work on the plantations, to educate our children, to escape Japanese colonialism, to practice Christianity. In 1888, the first Korean diplomats, called Bobingsa, were sent by King Kojong to the U.S. Korea was then subject to the rules of the Chinese Qing dynasty. Michelle Cho is the old Korean legation guide. She told us that Korea was then colonized by Japan. They demanded Korea sell the legation building to them for $5 and immediately sold it for $10. At the end of World War II, the country was divided by Russia and the U.S. In 1888, the King Kojong purchased this home um, with his own pocket money, basically, for $25,000. And this is the map of Washington, D.C., the official map of D.C. in 1892. And this is actually housed at the Library of Congress today. But regardless, only four years have passed since the purchase of this home. But you could see the Korean delegation sort of pinpointed on the legend over here. At the time, we uh, that was when Korea was still under sort of like the Qing Dynasty government rule, and so at the time the uh, the Qing Dynasty was basically like, okay, so we'll have you guys prop up a legation in the states, but you guys have to abide by our three rules, which is called the Yongyak Samdan, and those are basically the first one was upon arriving to the states, you have to announce that you are coming under the Qing Dynasty. The second one was in any sort of formal setting, you have to sit under the Qing Dynasty, and so the third one was um, in any sort of diplomatic conversations you have with the states before you have to kind of filter and have a conversation with the Qing dynasty before you do that. And so the first minister, Park Zhongyang Gongsanim, he didn't listen to any of that. So he was sent back to China. So that's kind of the history or the start to our legation. Mm-hmm. And in terms of what you've personally discovered about Koreans and Americans or your own personal journey of mm-hmm. identity. I was wondering if you could fill that in a bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I This was my first time understanding or learning about the Korean legation. And then through this process and understanding that it was sold to Japan in 1910, or it was sold by the Japanese for $5 in 1910. And so after I had learned about that, I uh, first came across the Korean legation's postcards. And so what the Koreans that were living in America at the time, they had circulated these postcards over here that I can show you. And in this postcard, they have an exa- there's an exaggerated Korean flag. So it kind of showcases, and they wanted this to be a statement of liberation, basically. So you could see that it's an exaggerated flag of the building here. And so this was a very touching and sort of um, a moment where I realized the importance of a lot of Koreans living overseas. So basically being a Korean American. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Who is this Min Young Hwan? I have his picture in a family photo album. Oh, see, oh, really? Okay, so we could press this here. And so he was also a minister, I guess. Mm-hmm. That was a that was 
Yes, he's another minister, I believe. When the Protectorate Treaty of 1905 was signed, he committed suicide. Against the treaty. My family wanted freedom from Japanese colonialism, so it made sense to have Min's photo in our family's album. Curator Henry Cho emphasized the money that the plantation workers gave to support Korean independence from Japan. So we, uh, my museum manager would like to mention that although we are most familiar with the LA's independent movement, we have to still understand that the independent movement had occurred in Hawaii and that was where, like the central part of where the independent movement had started. So although a lot of people in the States remember LA as like the major point, we still want to give thanks to the independent movement in Hawaii as like one of the firsts. My name is John Wong and I'm Chinese American. I really did not know that this existed, that this this was actually kept in, in a historical history dislocation and the building itself and, and how much detail and time has been put into it. There's just so much history nowadays that's just kind of lost and and coming to this place, it just kind of gives you more in-depth detail about what was actually going on at the time and you know what they were doing. And then of course, uh, during the Japanese colonialization and even just part of uh, Korean history, you know, things that I had an idea about, but I did not really know in that much detail. So the tour here was quite enlightening. This is a beautiful area and the building's beautiful. They did a great job doing it. Thank you so much. I think for Korean Americans and uh, historical buffs for, in the political Asian society, I think this might be a good visit uh, just to uh, come and take a look. In 2012, the building was bought by the Korean government and restored. The tour of the legation building made me think about dad. So I hoofed it to the Korean War Memorial, dedicated in 2022, 69 years after the armistice. Dad came to post-war Korea as a scholar to UC Berkeley, the start of his American dream. In my lifetime, Korea went from being a place that no kid in my school could point to on a map to a technological and pop culture force that impacts the globe. But there's no peace treaty, and during the Korean War, five million soldiers and civilians died. Welcome to the Korean War Veterans Memorial. This program is an audio description of the interpretive sign titled, Not Forgotten. From 1950 to 1953, American troops were joined by soldiers of other nations to defend South Korea from invasion by North Korea. Today, the Korean War Veterans Memorial remembers their service and sacrifice. As you walk down this path, battle-clad statues emerge from the tree line. They cross rice paddy fields, represented by juniper bushes and granite strips. The strips draw the eye right to a mural wall, etched with the faces of people who supported the ground troops. Ahead of you, a quiet pool and wall of remembrance honors those who gave their lives during the war. I know some uh, issues about North Korea and South Korea. Uh, the states helped South Korea to, you know, prevent communism to spread. So um, I think they 
they did and what they have to do. You know, it's good to remember those people. When it started to rain, I looked at the sculptures of the soldiers, the wreaths. With over 28,500 American troops stationed in South Korea and no peace treaty, I thought about how every Korean I know has family or friends who died in this war. The words on the memorial, freedom is not free. That was HPR Stephanie Hahn, who is in Washington, D.C., for the 70th anniversary of the Korean Armistice. She visited the old Korean Legation Museum, which is a Victorian home which served as a diplomatic office. There uh, are an estimated 2 million people of Korean descent in the U.S., including 50,000 in the state of Hawaii. reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat is the lead story for the online news service. Editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So the story that you've got is from Kirsten Downey, and it's about how the feds are watching for money laundering. Correct. Uh, Specifically uh, money laundering uh, in local real estate circles. Uh, The U.S. Treasury Department specifically is looking into uh, some of these deals here, uh, and it requires that... um, Title companies uh, actually have to report the IDs of the true owners uh, when you have these all-cash purchases of, of residential real estate uh, property, uh, residential real estate property that exceeds $300,000. There's actually a new law, I think it was in 2021, requiring this information at the federal level be shared in a, in a national database uh, so that prosecutors uh, can use the database to track down if you will, stolen assets. Uh, What it's raising, of course, is privacy issues versus law enforcement. As Kirsten points out, there's a lot of people that buy these, if you will, luxury properties, and they want to remain anonymous. And many of them, according to her reporting, are law-abiding citizens. But the problem is, is there's a whole lot of other people, particularly from overseas, uh, foreign nationals that have been buying up these these residential properties and using them to well to store drugs and money and and other things uh illegal activity well you know i recall it was a, several years ago when there was a big announcement about how the feds were going to be taking a closer look at a lot of these real estate deals that were you know in the millions and yeah. I, it, <laughs> and that you know prompted me to learn about uh something called FinCEN, which is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Yeah, I- that's, that is uh, the actual uh, part of the U.S. Treasury Department that is doing these investigations. Uh, something I didn't know that the U.S. actually lacks behind other countries when it comes to what's known as ownership transparency. So, so back in 2016, there was a pilot project started at the federal level, and the Fed started looking at places like Manhattan and Miami. Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, places that are very high-end or certainly have very high-end neighborhoods. Uh, Honolulu was added to that two years later in 2018, and we certainly have our share of luxury properties here. Uh, Now that pilot project has more or less become a permanent project, and hence uh, the reason for Kirsten's story that they're looking at uh, local properties, particularly uh, high-rise condos, single-family dwellings, and the like. Again, residential 
residential property. Yeah, and I remember, you know, it was mainly, you know, here on Oahu, but now it's branched out to all the neighbor islands. So it's curious. I I would have thought they would have done that right at the bat, just all the properties in Hawaii, period. As we all know, the the, the population is concentrated here, as is uh, much of the luxury market, but there were definitely luxury properties uh, on the neighbor islands. And uh, Kirsten could not get any of the local title companies uh, on all the islands. There's about 14 or so. To, to comment, they just said they could not comment. We couldn't get prosecutors to comment as well. But these title companies are reported to be cooperating uh, and, and because the concern is that Hawaii is now a target. Who are these buyers? Well, uh, and it, it includes Russian oligarchs, uh, with something which has increased since the Ukraine invasion in 2022. There's financial, uh, rather foreign officers, um, foreign officials from other countries, rather, with embezzlement funds, there are drug dealers involved here. China too is is listed as being involved in this money laundering. Uh, they are a country that produces a lot of fentanyl, uh, and so some of that money is being laundered uh, through real estate. Yeah, so it's just really curious because you know when uh, companies often snatch up real real estate here, you know they sometimes do it with shell companies or LLCs, yeah. where which kind of protects most people from figuring out who's really behind these things. Right, and it, it is a, a big business, if you will. Estimates are, are that this, this money laundering is about 500 billion, that's B as in boy, billion dollars nationally, uh, and includes Hawaii. I, I was uh, surprised to hear about this, uh, but we should also add this. Here's another element. Um, with this these purchases, these uh, this money, launder, money laundering into to residential properties, that's also probably jacking up the prices artificially because it's outside buyers. And of course, as we all know, with the governor's housing proclamation emergency, or rather housing is a crisis here just because we can't afford to live here. Yeah, well, the article was interesting because I know because uh, she also, you know, mentioned that yeah, that sometimes they'll flip it to other associates and and then dri- <laughs> drives the, pr- the the prices up. So very curious. Yeah, not, not kind of not the kind of residents we're looking for here. Right. Okay. So. <laughs> we want good neighbors. All right. Yes, uh, we do. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. We have been talking with Honolulu Civil Beat Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair to read uh, Kirsten Downey's story. Visit civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today, we're looking at the corner of King and Isenberg Streets in Honolulu. If you're looking for landmarks, this is the intersection where you'll find a First Hawaiian Bank location and a park named after the sports structure that exists only in collective memories and archival photographs. In 1925, businessman J. Ashman Beaven purchased 14 acres in the neighborhood and built the 25,000-seat Honolulu Stadium for around $150,000. 
Uh, it officially opened on November 11th, 1926, and the first event there was a football game. For those of you who lived through the era of diners in car hops, there was a popular drive-in located across the street that grew large crowds of teens in their souped-up hot rods. It was the place to hang out and order favorite menu items like thick crinkle crinkle-cut fries, a corned beef hash plate with gravy over everything, and an orange freeze. For today's quiz, name the eatery that once was located where the First Hawaiian Bank currently sits. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. Today on The Daily, a major new study has revealed in staggering ways just how much elite college admissions in the U.S. systematically favor the rich and the super rich. My colleague, David Leonhardt, walks us through the data. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. see as many people wearing masks these days, but COVID cases are still being reported, though not in the numbers and severity that we saw at the height of the pandemic. Today we hear from former Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell, who put together a book, a collection of interviews with 25 of our top business and government leaders. It's entitled, Our Beaches Were Empty and Our Hospitals Were Full, Leadership Stories from Hawaii's Unique Pandemic Response. One of those interviewed was infectious disease doctor Jonathan Dworkin from Queens Health Systems. He also wrote a book, The Plague Doctors, and how Hawaii battled the pandemic, a view from the medical trenches during a global public health crisis. But we start with Caldwell. I think when you have a major world event at any time, there should be a history of what occurred. And I thought it was appropriate that we write a history of what occurred in Hawaii. And part of what motivated me is when I was mayor and the pandemic, when we started seeing cases in Wuhan and then spreading over to Seattle, Washington, I asked our guys to get me everything on the Spanish flu of 1918 from the Honolulu perspective. I wanted to know what happened back in 1918 in Oahu. There was nothing, nothing available to look at to see what do you do. They did give me a brochure or a binder that was put together by the city in 2010 that talked about continuity of the city and county of Honolulu government. You know, how do you keep water flowing, sewage dealt with, garbage picked up, but nothing about the public health side. And part of it is because the counties of all the islands, we don't have a health component. It's a statewide thing. Nothing existed. And therefore, we're kind of inventing things as they go. So I thought in the future, and I do believe there will be more pandemics because of a rapidly warming climate. Hawaii Public Radio and National Public Radio is reporting about the temperatures in Florida is, is like a hot tub, that we're going to see more pandemics. And therefore, this book 
will be helpful to future leaders because the last chapter is about what you do to be do a better job. And a lot of it came out of a group that Jonathan was a part of putting together recommendations that we also agreed with and worked on on our own. So that was part of the reason. The other part is just to write a history. You know, when you have a hundred year event, there should be a history of what occurs. I'm sure there's many books written about it from a national or international perspective, but the only two books I know of in Hawaii is one is Jonathan's Plague Doctors and the book put together by Georgette Deemer and myself um, called, you know, Our Beaches Are Empty, Our Hospital is Full. And we thought, as you mentioned, you were in Waikiki. There's two things. When we shut everything down, I did jog through Waikiki one day from Diamond Head down and then back through down Kalakaua. It was the most eerie feeling to see no one, no cars, no people, no one on the beach. It was chicken skin. I thought I'm seeing something I'll probably never, ever see in my life nor will other people see. The other thing, though, is when we did start to open up. Remember, we had Kalakaua open for bike riding and skateboarding and walking. And, and the number of people who showed up, safer outside, to celebrate being together again as people was reaffirming to me as why I think it's important to write this kind of book, because at the end of the day, it's about the people of Oahu and the state of Hawaii. So I'm just curious, and because you tapped 25 people, you know, yes. the community leaders... We actually selected more than 25. A few of them I called. They didn't return calls like Scott Psyche. You know, I tried to reach him because I thought he put together a very good panel on the house side. Ron Kochi was interviewed. We didn't put cameras, but we did have a tape recorder. We recorded. I had a bunch of questions to ask. Kind of, you know, the starting one is, when did you first know of COVID-19? And how did you learn about it? And what did you do in the early days? And just went through kind of the chronologically what happened. But we recorded what they said. We transcribed it, gave it back to them to review it, to make sure it was accurate. And then we lifted components of it into the book. So this book is really their voices and their decision makers, people on the front line, not second in command, not the, it's the CEO, not the CFO or COO. If the head of a healthcare organization like Ray Vara, it's Ray Vara talking. People who made the decisions and had to stand behind them, whether they were good or bad. And we then put this book together. One thing that was interesting is we, when we sent back the transcripts, a couple of people took out the most juicy stuff, which oh. would have been great to put in there. But again, it's their voices telling the story. It's not me as mayor kind of telling what I think the story is, but really their stories. I think it's a really fascinating reading. You know, a couple of guys said they picked it up and couldn't put it down, finished it in like five hours. They, you know, it's kind of telling a story, a very traumatic kind of story for our community. Yeah. And Jonathan, you were one of the 25. And, you know, I know we reached out to you a couple of times during the pandemic as well, as well as a number of the people, you know, that the mayor interviewed. What were your thoughts? Because when you wrote your book, it was focused, you know, from your side as a, a infectious disease specialist. Yeah, I think the two efforts are, are complementary. You know, the mayor had access to people who were in leadership positions all around the state. And it was interesting for me to read their perspectives, you know, two, three years later, because these were people that I either didn't interact with directly or interacted with only transient. Plague doctors is much more of a, a ground level view. You know, it, it, it takes the first person perspective. My perspective is an infectious disease doctor, you know, leaning into this crisis as it was unfolding. And then as time goes on, there's a, a parallel story that develops as I, you know, become more involved with the with the public health response, including, you know, many of the people who were working at the county of Honolulu. So there's certainly overlap because Mayor Caldwell and I begin to interact around April 2020. And, you know, my efforts as an infectious disease doctor and the efforts of my colleagues begin to meld with some of his efforts. But the two books are are each a different take on this, and, and as such, I think, provide a wider perspective. I remember talking to the infectious disease chief over at Kaiser, 
And when they were marking the anniversary, they had a little ceremony out on the lawn. And he was describing what that was like and just the emotional toll, I think, that it took on the staff. So I think, you know, with your book, you were able to talk about the people in the trenches. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, that ground level view is important because it's it's healthcare workers, you know, primarily doctors and nurses that had to deal with this pandemic, particularly when it was at, at the scariest at the very beginning when we lacked PPE, when we lacked any kind of appropriate countermeasure for really dealing with it. So part of my book is, is sort of a, a maybe a bedtime story for Hawaii residents. You know, how did we deal with this crisis? How did we fight it off? How did we ultimately succeed? I think we did succeed in many ways. So there's fundamentally an optimistic story there. But then there's also a, an analysis, a, you know, an, an attempted at a higher level analysis of what, what do we need to do to be prepared for next time? I wanted to add a little bit more to your question on to Jonathan. There's a part of the book, you know, and here, Jonathan and I were together every week multiple times a week with a medical panel advising the sitting county because we didn't have a Department of Health to advise us, and they gave us great advice. And I think sometimes they were frustrated with things I didn't do or things that I did do. But I didn't know this. There's a part in the book, and maybe Jonathan did, he's, toxic, he's an infectious disease doctor at Queen's Health Systems, a hospital started by Queen Emma and her husband to deal with Native Hawaiians who are dying from disease, from their pandemic, from smallpox and other things. And he talks about it, if all of us know, as you go to Queens and you walk down the halls, there's all these pictures of Ali'i, Native Hawaiians. And he talks in there about, you know, what those pictures speaking to him about this is the time to step up. You're an infectious disease doctor. I didn't know that till I interviewed him. Yet I talked to him for hours on end about what do we do and how, but didn't know maybe some of the additional pressures on a very personal level that he was dealing with. And it was Jonathan along with Dr. Libby Char, who became Department of Health, that encouraged me when we had that second surge in the summer of 2020. They had me go to Queens. Jonathan set it up. It was on August 18th, statehood holiday. It was a Friday. And I went up there, and to your point, seeing the toll it was taking as the wards started to fill up with COVID patients. You know, I met with doctors. I met with nurses. I met with people who just changed the linens and clean rooms. They all had this expression on their face of exhaustion, concern, and fear that if something doesn't happen, if action isn't taken, you're going to have people in hallways being treated, like you saw in Bergamo, Italy, or in New York, which led me to do the second shutdown to buy time and then come up with the tier system. But part of it is, if you read the book, the toll that it had on those on the front line. That are real. We talk about it. They were real heroes working around the clock, not knowing a lot in the initial days about COVID and what happens if they get it, but that they they stepped up. So there's one thing in the interview that I found out about Jonathan. The other one is, and it describes in the book, I wanted to shut down the city and county of Honolulu in the middle of March. And because Ray Vara had called along with Peter Ho and Mike Kakane. And they had given me information from the data collaborative that Piero Midiar put together, showing that if we didn't take action, we we're going to see this spike, not in March, but in April, and our hospitals would be full. And we would have a huge problem. And I went to see the governor, and I wanted him to go with the city and county to a statewide order. We had copied the order from London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, who was the first government entity in the country to do a you know, stay-at-home, work-at-home order met with the governor for a couple hours. He was not on board. Partly, I think it was, you know, Bruce Anderson was pushing back quite a bit on it. 
because there's pukas in it, you know, essential businesses and all of that. But it wasn't until I, and I was frustrated with the governor that he wouldn't make a decision and go together. And um, when I interviewed him for the book, it was the first time I found out that he said, you know, Kirk, you got to realize Oahu with a million people on 600 square miles of land is very different than the island of Kauai with 74,000 or Hawaii Island with the most land and 180,000. Not all the mayors were on board. And as governor, I had to balance. That's why I didn't go with you. That comes out in the book. And that frustration I held up into that interview went away when I understood, yeah, you got to look at it from his perspective also. So I found that fascinating. When I was reading your book, I learned things about our business community that I hadn't realized, you know, and you just put it more into perspective. You know, Hawaiian Air's losses, yeah. $3, million, $3 million a day, the banks, yeah. the, the hotels. So it was good to have that perspective as opposed to, you know, just looking down the, the medical field, the right. medical side. You know, particularly I, what I found really interesting is interviewing Peter Ingram, the CEO of Hawaiian Airlines, and how he described what was happening just without any government action early on, starting in January, he started seeing fewer tra people traveling from Asia, from, from Korea and Japan. And they had to start canceling flights because they weren't being filled or they were empty flying from places like Hokkaido. So without any government action, people, us as human beings, we know when we got to start being careful. And we're starting to read about COVID-19 and people in Asia in particular are saying, we're not going to travel. And so he'd be changing schedules. But as he changed, it just was a domino, right? He couldn't, Hawaiian Air couldn't keep up with the changes that were happening with Asia. And pretty soon they started to see the same thing coming from the continental United States, East and West Coast. And this house of cards that collapsed within like two weeks was dramatic before we even did the shutdown. He was living real life scenarios about what do we do? How do we get our planes back? How do we make sure our pilots and flight attendants are back in the islands? as we cancel flights, where do we put our planes? It was a fascinating description. And of course, as you say, the amount of money he had to borrow, the money he was losing, and this trying to care about his employees was, it's a dramatic story in and of itself. And I encourage people to read the book, if for another reason to read the Peter Ingram story in the book. Uh, we will have more of our conversation with former Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell and Queens Dr. Uh, Jonathan Dworkin after a short break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the Global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Karen Casey, author of Each Day a New Beginning. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about insights on cultivating more love and peace in your life. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, offering guidance on how to help babies sleep safely by always placing baby on their back with a fitted sheet but no toys, blankets, or pillows. Learn more at cpsc.gov. 
This weekend, former Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell and Queen's infectious disease specialist Dr. Jonathan Dworkin will be at a book signing at Barnes & Noble. Uh, Dworkin wrote The Plague Doctors, and Caldwell wrote, Our beaches were empty, our hospitals were full. Let's continue the conversation we had with the two of them yesterday afternoon. Uh, Dworkin joins us by phone, and Caldwell dropped by our studios. You talked about lessons learned, Mayor. Um, So what is your hope? Well, one is hope. And, you know, one thing when I was interviewing people, a few of the CEOs in the private sector told me, you know, Mary, you did a you did a good job. But uh, the one thing we hoped you would have done more of is talk more about hope. And they mentioned, you know, for example, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the Depression. And even during World War II, he spoke much about hope. And he said there were a few government leaders who actually talked about hope. They talked about actions to take, how to protect yourself what they were doing in terms of order shutting, shutting down and opening up. But they, they said a little bit more discussion on hope that there will be a better future that will come out of this just gives people more reason to sacrifice and, and to not do things because at the end of the day, we're going to be a better position. That's not to say the one thing, and I, you know, I put this in the book, the end is you interview these folks, you read the book. The one thing that is amazing are the people of Oahu and the state of Hawaii, the sacrifices they made, the perseverance they showed, and the concern for each other. You know, that ohana really does exist. I don't think anywhere else in the country you saw the kind of sacrifice that was made for the greater good. It wasn't, well, I'm going to do it because I want to do it. No, we are a unique group of people in a unique part of the world that really do care about each other, and we'll make those sacrifices to come out on the better end. The other thing is the stay-at-home, work-at-home order is, if you talk to Jonathan, I mean, I, I, it did work in terms of spread, delaying the spread of the disease while the vaccine was developed. You know, once so we went into the tier system and then the vaccine started to roll out, it gave time for people to get vaccinated. It doesn't mean they didn't get sick, but there were fewer people in the hospital and fewer people dying. Um, but did we have to do a widespread stay-at-home and work-at-home order? Could we be more strategic? For example... In our order, we allowed Costco to be open for food, a national chain, but you didn't allow the small mom and pop grocery stores to be open for food. And we punished and penalized these smaller operations and perhaps in the future, and it's at the conclusion is a more strategic type of order, if you need the time to develop a new vaccine, would be probably helpful. As long as they had the right protocols to protect people and only so many people in store per square foot, of course, masking, distancing as you stand up by the cash register. These are things that we could do better. And I think the next mayor, when there is another pandemic, will do exactly that. And Jonathan, any final thoughts for you? Yeah. You know, the the Queen's health system was created in the wake of a smallpox epidemic in 1856. If you're familiar with the history of epidemics in the island, what you realize is the absolutely devastating impact that it had on the Hawaiian kingdom. And that was the the historical backdrop for the pandemic here. To me, as an infectious disease doctor rounding in that hospital, it was completely not acceptable to have a repeat of those events in the 19th century. So that, that was what I bent my will towards early, initially with conversations in the hospital. How can we prepare? And then, you know, the broader conversation. One of the things I think people really need to wrap their heads around, because there's a false narrative spreading now that nothing works, nothing matters. One of the things people really need to wrap their heads around is that early in the epidemic, the fatality rate was about 10 times higher than it is now. So interrupting transmission early in the epidemic was absolutely critical. And if you look at Hawaii's 
total fatality number per capita adjusted and compare it to other places in the United States, we're much lower. You know, we're about a third of Florida's, for example. It's because we focus like a laser beam on interrupting transmission in that early phase. And that was a success. And I want people to understand that. Now, could we do it in a better way next time? Well, that would involve, you know, creating infrastructure that would allow us to do it better next time. And both of our books touch on that point. But I think it's important not to be, you know, just nihilist about this and say, well, nothing really worked. When we know, we can look at places like Singapore and Korea that had really exceptional responses. And we can look at our own response and we can compare it to some of the responses on the mainland. And we know that these things had an impact and that we protected our state. We protected our state. That was Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Dworkin and former mayor Kirk Caldwell talking about Hawaii's response to the pandemic. To date, we've had less than 2,000 COVID deaths in Hawaii. So many people work so hard to do the right thing for Hawaii during a difficult and scary time. That's the take of two books on the subject. The authors, Dworkin and Caldwell, will be at a book signing at Barnes & Noble Bookstore at the Alamoana Center on Saturday, starting at 1 p.m. For every book sold, Barnes & Noble will make a donation to the University of Hawaii John A. Burns School of Medicine in hopes that we can be better prepared when the next pandemic comes around. When we walk together on Waikiki stands, watch the glowing sunset hand in hand, felt the trade winds And now we're serving up the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Early in the show, we were in Mo'ili'ili, remembering landmarks old and new. The area has a very rich sporting history, and for the older generation, there are still fond memories of sitting in the Honolulu Stadium, cheering for famous athletes such as Babe Ruth, Joe DiMaggio, and Jesse Owens. Back in the stadium's heyday, large crowds would congregate at a nearby drive-in following football or baseball games, mostly teens who found it a great place to cruise and show off their hot rods. Patron Ray Wong fondly remembered the restaurant, saying, It had a great location. I remember the terry beef, the beef cutlet and goulash plate lunches. The hamburgers were 25 cents, cheeseburgers 30 cents, terry beef sandwich 45 cents, bag of crinkle-cut fries 15 cents, and a Coke was just a dime. And who knows, folks like Elvis Presley may have dropped by Chunky's Drive-In for a bite after a sold-out performance. And congratulations to our winner, Gilbert from Honolulu. His fave on the menu was the corned beef hash plate. And we had lots of calls, uh, a lot of callers today talking about their memories. That is today's quiz. If you have an idea uh, to share, oh, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. We've all noticed more and more businesses asking us to leave a tip, from coffee shops and breweries to takeout and drive throughs The box popped up when I went to pay, like, what tip amount? I thought, you know, it's fast food. I don't tip. I didn't know what to do. I just didn't. But is Subway fast food? I wasn't sure. I started to panic. I'm Tiziana Deering, navigating the new rules of tipping. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. There's a lot of conversation about how much say do we have in what happens here. 
On the next episode of This Is Our Hawaii, we explore what Lanai residents want for their community and whether or not that matches up with the ideas of their landlord. On this island, it's very hard to feel like your voice is being heard. Available tomorrow, wherever you get your podcasts. You've been hearing a lot lately about the massive heat waves that have been baking the continental United States, but there's also some extreme weather that's that's been affecting parts of Asia Pacific, and even though that's in our neighborhood, you probably haven't heard as much about that. HBR's Bill Dorman reports on that in today's Asia Minute and joins us now with a bit of a deeper dive. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. You know, it's interesting. Talking about uh, hearing about preparations around health concerns and pandemic and taking back to that storm preparations, uh, another key factor for Hawaii. Seeing some things right now, there are a lot of folks along the, uh, the coast of China who are preparing for what may be the most powerful typhoon of the season there. It's called uh, Doksuri. Um, winds nearly 120 miles an hour now. That's equivalent to a Category 3 hurricane. Uh, 130 miles an hour is Category 4, so, so climbing up there. By the way, people ask sometimes, hurricane, typhoon, what's the difference? It's just location defines this. So if it's in the North Atlantic, the Caribbean, Central or Eastern North Pacific even, it's still called a hurricane. That's why in Hawaii we talk about hurricanes. But then if you shift it over to East Asia, the Northwest Pacific, then it's a, then it's a typhoon. But it's, it's the same in, in terms of that storm. Um, but yeah. I was watching the news the other night and I saw this gigantic typhoon that was headed toward the Philippines and then afterwards I saw a, a picture of a man he was you know up to his armpits in water and flooding over there yeah so st- same system I uh, and as often happens by the way in the Philippines they, they have different names for storm systems so typhoon Doksuri uh, their typhoon uh, Ege is is what they've uh, they've called it in the Philippines, but that's it's killed about thirty people so far. It capsized a, a boat, killing more than twenty, and other flooding, uh, as you said, uh, through through the northern part of the Philippines. Um, this one now a bit further uh, further the, the coast of China, as I said, Xiamen is is a a major. Port. It's one of the top 10 container port cities in, in China. That appears to be right in the, the zone of where this is uh, coming. Uh, a bit further south in Guangdong, uh, they're saying this could be the worst storm in 10 years. They've, they had another typhoon just a couple of weeks ago. Um, but as it came through also the Philippines and, and into Taiwan, uh, mudslides, you know, you talked about those pictures of flooding. That's, again, it brings just this whole series of things. It's the winds, the rain, and then the floods that, that follow. It's a pattern that, that's sadly familiar, but it's one that can be pretty destructive. And then talk about monsoons, because we often hear about that um, when we talk about Asia. But... <laughs> Yeah, monsoons and weather systems. For one thing, monsoons often come in terms of the description of monsoon rains, and it's uh, it's often India is the uh, sort of the, the first thing that you may think about with this. Monsoons are actually wind systems, uh, so and these are seasonal patterns, and they they bring there's a there's actually a wet monsoon and a dry monsoon, but the the wet monsoon is mostly what people think about uh, bringing rains and. They 
they are different seasonal uh, depending on where you are, and they, they go elsewhere in Asia. So, for example, South Korea uh, has a monsoon season, which, as it happens, just uh, ended yesterday. Uh, they, they announced that, and uh, that doesn't mean that it's the end of rains or because they're actually expecting some pretty intense rain over the next few days there. Um, but the system that is driven by by wind, and it takes uh, different forms in, in different places, crops very dependent, just, again, the natural world, just as the flooding of the Nile, uh, you know, has a great agricultural impact in, in, uh, in Egypt. The monsoon season and crops, its impact on crops in India is, is just crucial. There's there's one part that, uh, and again, having lived in Pakistan for a while, seeing this, uh, it's a tourist attraction, typhoon season, parts of, of India. Uh, and the southwest part of, uh, of India, Kerala, uh, is very popular with a lot of Middle Eastern visitors and a lot of Gulf state folks who come over where rain is just such a phenomenon. It's like folks from Hawaii going to see snow. You know, it's <laughs> yes. like, we never get this. But um, folks will, will stand out on hotel balconies and, and see the, the sheets of rain sweeping in and just be fascinated by this. And this season, I just looked this up, the Times of India had a story a few weeks ago about an aggressive marketing campaign that they're doing in India, and they're posting um, ads in, in the uh, airports in Dubai um, and in Doha, and uh, they, they did a road show actually a little while back in, in Saudi Arabia, where, where I worked briefly, and boy, that's hot. Uh, that, that's the hottest place just I, I've ever been, and the idea of a monsoon soothing rain if you live in Saudi, is is just uh, something that's uh, that's pretty fascinating. So, so they make lem, uh, lemonade out of lemons there. <laughs> yes, actually, absolutely, and and know where the the demand is in terms of talk about a, a niche market for uh, for targeting that. That's really interesting. And so, gosh, you know, we're dealing with um, with all of this, you know, extreme weather. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. What, what else do we need to know about this area? Well, so a lot of this is seasonal. I mean, you talk about monsoon. Typhoons also have a season, and those vary slightly depending on where that is. China has one of the longer typhoon seasons. It's May to November. Hong Kong is April to October. Philippines is June to October. And Japan and South Korea, June through November. So if you do that, that overlay of sort of Venn diagrams, you have typhoon season for a lot of the Asia-Pacific right now. Uh, and different places react differently to that. And the common theme of extreme weather right now is the intensity is bigger than it has been in the past. And that, that's what's different. You have these seasonal weather weather patterns, but the intensity is dialed up to record levels now. That's true with the uh, with typhoons. Uh in Hong Kong, by the way, if you're if you're there, they have a system of flags and warnings so that you can see all around the city. It's yellow, red, and black. So if the red flag goes up, you know, if you're in school, stay there. If you're home, stay there. Black flag goes up in Hong Kong, and anybody who's spent time there knows this. Business shuts down. Everything shuts down. Mass transit sometimes shuts down, usually not for very long, but... Um, in terms of warning, but the intensity is what they're they're looking for. 
and heat. You know, we talked about heat in the United States, hot temperature. A lot of people don't realize Southeast Asia hit record temperatures this past spring. It was really difficult in uh, from Malaysia to uh, to Thailand, number of other places uh, facing facing records. So. Again, I think seasonal weather patterns all over the world here here in Hawaii as well, of course. But the intensity of those uh, of those extreme weather events are something that that we're seeing this time around. Yeah, and you know you have to factor in the humidity, <laughs> you know, because that just makes it, uh, you know, just more ah, crazy, you know, because it, it just zaps you. It's true, and it makes it more dangerous on a, on a medical level. Um, and again, in Southeast Asia in particular, this was a real um, issue during that heat wave in the spring. Fatalities really shot up, uh, again, not just because of the heat, but the, the humidity and the implications that that has as well. Yeah, with lots of wacky weather around the world, and and we've just got to, you know, make sure that we're prepared. We're, you know, we are in hurricane season. Mm-hmm. And where I grew up, it was we were in Typhoon Alley, and we had more typhoons. They come like fastballs. And so we just have to be prepared for that to shift. And we may may see more over here. But we've got to be prepared. But thank you so much, Bill. We have been uh, talking with HBR's news director, Bill Dorman. He had the Asia wrap for us. You can read the Asia Minute at hawaiipublicradio.org. But uh, stay cool, everybody, and stay calm. time now. Up tomorrow, more on the ceremonies in our nation's capital on the 70th anniversary of the truce that brought peace to Korea, but has kept the North and South divided. Got questions about something you heard on our show? Call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something you heard, find the conversation on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.